All right, so this morning we're going to tie a bow on Freedom Weekend. That's what we're going to do this morning. Um, I've never had a screen behind me. I, I think I know when I'm going to use it, though. I can't wait. Um, when I do it, I'm going to smile at y'all, and you guys are going to be like, oh my gosh, I, I'm, I'm excited about it. Okay, uh, but this morning we're going to tie a bow on Freedom Weekend. Over the course of the past weekend, what we've done is, is we've walked through a couple passages of Scripture, and we've looked at how Jesus has freed us from sin. Uh, we've looked at how Jesus has freed us from death. We've looked at how Jesus has uh, freed us from religion. I remember. We looked at last night how Jesus freed us from religion. And in all of these things, like what we've learned is that, that we have been freed in the gospel. The gospel has freed us to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And what the gospel has freed us from is, is the enslavement that the prince of the power of the air has brought upon us. And we're going to talk about that here in this message today in Genesis chapter 3. And I can think of no better way to tie a bow on our weekend, this weekend, and to talk about what it means for us to be free to go and tell the world. More specifically, what it means for us to have been freed from shame so that we can go and tell the world about Jesus. Now, one of the major realities of the good news of the gospel is that whenever God saves us with the gospel, he doesn't just save us to sit. He saves us to send us. David Platt says it like this. He says, the gospel came to you on its way to somebody else. The main point of today's message is this, Jesus provides freedom from shame so that we can show others the path to freedom. Jesus provides freedom from shame so that we can show others the path to freedom. Now John chapter 4, and that's where we're going to be at today, uh, this is one of my favorite stories in all of scripture. I think it's an amazing story. Uh, The woman in this story is a Samaritan woman. Which to be a Samaritan meant that you were a half Jew. Now, Samaritans were a mixed race of the Assyrians um, and the Jewish and the the Israelite people. Now, this happened because of the Israelites' disobedience to God. They disobeyed God, and if you read the book of Micah, you find God saying, look, the Assyrians are coming. Like, there ain't no repentance here. I'm going to save a remnant of you, but y'all been ratchet. Y'all been ratchet for a long time. And so I'm sending the Assyrians in to clean up. And the Samaritans, they are the product of that cleaning up. And because they were a mixed race, the Jews, the remnant that was left, they believed them to be unclean. They were like incredibly racist. They were awful. They wouldn't even travel through the town of Samaria. And yet, as we're about to see, Jesus had to. But here's the deal with this woman. Not only was she a Samaritan, but she was a Samaritan that the Samaritans didn't like. This woman was the marginalized of the marginalized. Now, I believe that the primary purpose that Jesus comes to Samaria was so that he could bring the gospel to the Samaritans. I believe that's what he was doing. I mean, John chapter 3, 16, Jesus clearly states that the gospel is for everyone. It doesn't matter your gender. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic status or your culture. The gospel is for you. Absolutely no one is outside of the reach of the gospel. Listen to this. No one. It doesn't matter how bad you've been. It doesn't matter how religious you've been. Listen to me, church. The gospel is not just what saves you, but the gospel is also what sustains your salvation. Like, there's no varsity level in Christianity. You will always need the gospel. No one is outside of the reach of God's love. No one. Now, where we're going to begin this morning, we're going to begin by by reading verses 1 through 6, and then I'm going to pray, and we're going to walk through the story. And when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard, verse 1, that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, 
He left Judea and he went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well, and it was about noon. Now, there are three things, three things after I pray that I want to show you about this passage, but let's pray, and then let's jump right in. God, you're good, and God, we just ask that your spirit would move. God, we ask that your spirit would move in our hearts and our lives. God, I pray that there would be such a powerful move of your spirit this morning as your word goes forth that no one in this room can claim to have done it. God, all glory and honor and praise and power be to you, God. We love you, and we thank you for your son, Jesus. God, may your word as it goes forward, God, may it accomplish the purpose of making sinners saints and God, helping saints to be committed followers of you. God, we love you and we thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, point number one. Jesus came for the thirsty. Jesus came for the thirsty. Now, before I continue in the story, I want to point out a couple details. Can we get verse four back up here? See what I'm about to do? I'm about to use the screen. This is verse four. It's right here on the screen right behind me. You see this right here? It's verse four. There's a word up here that I want you to notice. This word right here, I feel like in our Bibles it should be bolded and and capitalized. It says Jesus had, he had to travel through Samaria. All right, that's all I got. I'm so sorry. But Jesus had to pass through Samaria. This is one of the first details that I want to make sure that we see and that we don't miss. He had to because Jesus wanted to bring salvation to the Samaritans. The second thing that I want to point out to you is the time of day. It's noon, it's around the hottest part of the day, and if you've ever been to the Middle East, it's hot. Like, people were not out and about at noon in the Middle East back then. They just weren't. Verse 7, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Now, I want you to remember, it's around noon, it's the hottest part of the day. People were not out and about back then because it's too hot to do anything. Now, back then, wells were a place where not only did people get water, but they were also a place of social gathering. So for someone to come to a well at a time when people didn't go to a well, I mean, I think it had to have meant one of two things. Like it was either an emergency or they were avoiding social interaction. Verse 7 continued, give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. Now I need you to realize what's happening here. Jesus is a Jew and this woman is a Samaritan. This whole interaction right here, like for for them back then, and even for people around the Jews and Samaritans, this would have gone outside of their normal human experience. As a matter of fact, whenever Jews and Samaritans would would interact, like back then, they would, I said this in the last service, they would like come to fisticuffs. I feel like that's not really a word that we use anymore. But like they would fight. Like, Like fights would happen. Jews and Samaritans, they did not like each other. And yet Jesus, in this this passage, he asked her for a drink. And the Bible says that he had to go through this town, a town that the Jews considered to be unclean, untouchable, unapproachable. But not only does Jesus go through the town of Samaria, but he also interacts with a Samaritan woman. Now, I think if the story would have ended there, if Jesus would have just looked at this woman and he would have said, like, hi or something, people would have been been like, "Eh, yeah, you know, it's Jesus. Jesus is always going to the least of these, right? Like, that's what people would have thought. But the story goes beyond that. It goes beyond a conversational interaction. Jesus asked her to give him water. 
Like a Jewish man asking a Samaritan woman for water would have sounded unreal back then. And so this is how she responds in verse 9. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? I see asked in this, for Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God, I love this, if you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. And we know that what Jesus is offering this woman is salvation. I love how sometimes we'll be like looking at scripture and we'll be in like Bible studies and we'll be like, man, I can't believe they didn't understand that. They're so dumb. Like we call Peter dumb all the time. Y'all, you want to know why Peter was so dumb in scripture? Because he didn't have the whole canon. Y'all, we got the whole story. Like, this seems crazy to us. Like, when, when, I, when I read this passage, I'm like, man, Jesus is offering this woman salvation. Like, she don't get it, though. It's because she didn't have the whole canon. Y'all, we have the whole story. This woman has no idea, but y'all, we have the whole story. I mean, that in and of itself, I'm going off my notes a little bit. Y'all, we got the whole story. If you believe the Bible to be God's word and you ain't devoted to God's word, that is a sign of unbelief. We talked about that this weekend with the students. If you believe the Bible to be God's word, but you ain't devoted to God's word, that's a sign of unbelief. I ain't saying, like, do it, like, religiously, like, I got to do this in order to earn God's love, but we do it, like, as a discipline. We should be disciplined to read God's word. I got in an argument with a guy in my small group this past week, and he's like, look, look, the, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit tells us what to do. He pushes us, you know, the, you know, he blows on us, and we go do what the Holy Spirit tells us to do. And I'm like, Yes, and you have to do something. He's like, nah, the Holy Spirit, like, no, 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 bro, like, we have to do something. Whenever it comes to the Word of God, like, y'all, I can't just sleep on my Bible. We used to do this in college, right? Osmosis. That doesn't work. Like, it doesn't work. I promise you, you can look at my GPA. It doesn't work. <laughs> Guys, these do get degrees, but I do want to tell you, these also get you put on academic probation. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Let me get back to the sermon. <laughs> Verse 11. <laughs> Sir, the woman said, you don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep, so where do you get this living water? So she starts mocking Jesus. Verse 12. You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us this well, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. It's like the mocking continues. Like she's mocking Jesus. She's basically saying to Jesus, look, I understand that you're a Jew. And I know that you Jews believe yourselves to be better than us. But listen, let me establish some credibility. We got this well from Jacob, our father. You can't tell me that the water that you have to offer us is better than the water that he offers us right here. But then Jesus' response is just amazing. Jesus said, verse 13, Everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. You see, this woman, like we're talking about a physical thirst. Like she believes Jesus is talking about a physical thirst, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. Verse 14, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water that I will give him will become a well of water springing up for eternal life. Now this piques the woman's interest. Probably she likes what she's hearing. Like, Jesus responds to this woman by offering her something that she desperately wants. Y'all, it's almost a play on words. It's almost a play on this woman's emotions. Like, Jesus knows this woman's sin. He knows her shame. Like he knows her deepest desire at this well, around noon, avoiding social interaction, not because she doesn't want to be social, y'all, but because her life is filled with so much shame. It's just filled with shame. 
And so what Jesus offers this woman is an end of her shame. And of course, she, she thinks, so, you know, she's here with, this, with these heavy jugs of water, and she's just sitting there thinking to herself, man, if this man is like really magical, he can give me this water, and I will never have to be thirsty again. I'll never have to come to this well. Man, like that would be awesome. Verse 15, this is what she says. She says, sir, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty again and come here to draw water. And like she goes from mocking Jesus to, to, to begging Jesus to just end her misery. She wants it to stop. But she doesn't understand that what Jesus is offering her is something so much better. Jesus is offering her an end to her shame. And so what Jesus does to help her understand is he exposes her shame. Verse 16, he says, go call your husband and come back here. Verse 17, I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five husbands and the man that you're with right now is not your husband. What you've said is true. And what Jesus does right here is he quickly and decisively exposes her broken and her, her brokenness and her need for love. Like this woman who desperately wanted to be loved, she had gone from man to man and was now living with a man that wasn't her husband. Like in that day, even for the Samaritans, this would have been evidence that she was a social pariah. Like here at the hottest part of the day, this was a time when, when, when women did not come to the well to draw water, and that's exactly why she's here. Tired of the embarrassment, tired of the sideways glances, tired of the snide comments. She knew her place. She was an outcast in almost every sense of the word. And what's most tragic is that she so clearly wanted to be loved, and she had spent her life searching for love, but that which she searched for, that which she searched with, just left her feeling more and more unloved. And so she was desperate. Church, Henry David Thoreau, he says this, we all lead lives of quiet desperation. We all lead lives of quiet desperation. Like we're all looking for identity and purpose and love and hope. And yet, unless we find it in Christ, we're going to look to things that don't have the ability to satisfy our needs. We're going to do that 100% of the time. Like the concept of thirst in this passage is a picture of the desperate search for love and meaning. God is the only one that truly satisfies that thirst in all of us. And listen to this. When God, when God satisfies the thirst, the thirst is not only satisfied, but it's also never quenched. Like it's satisfied and, and never quenched. Like God is the only one that can satisfy our every need. That's mental, that's emotional, that's physical, that's spiritual. When we drink from the well of the world, what happens is our thirst grows and it grows and it grows and it's never satisfied. For the moment, it might seem like it's satisfied, but the law of diminishing returns that describes our sin, church, sin will always ask us for more. It will always ask us for more until it has straight up killed us. That's what sin wants to do. Drinking from the well of the world may seem to satisfy us in the moment, but it's slowly killing us, like being stuck out at sea and drinking seawater to satisfy our thirst. What's going to happen is you're going to see dehydration and death. Like those are the two things, and that's what sin does. Now, the woman of Samaria was desperate. She was desperate for love. She was desperate for, for her shame to just be ended, but she found herself stuck. And in her desperation, Jesus brought her what she truly needed. He brought her salvation. Point number two, Jesus came to free his people. Jesus came to free his people. Now, we need to remember that Jesus just exposed this woman's sin. 
He just exposed her shame. He asked her to go and get her husband, and she's like, nah, I ain't got one. He's like, yeah, because you're with a man right now that's not your husband, and you've had five. He exposes her in a way that reveals that he knows that she's lived a life of promiscuity. Verse 19, sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place of worship is in Jerusalem. Now pay attention to what just happened, because we like to do this. Old church folk, and y'all Baptists are the worst. Now I'm Baptist too, we SPC. We're the worst at this. Jesus exposes this woman's sin and her shame. And she doesn't acknowledge what Jesus just exposed. Instead, she deflects. Ooh, do we love to do that. The revelation of her sin and her shame, it doesn't bring the woman to repentance. Instead, she just gets defensive. Like, how often is this our story? How often do we, when we're facing the exposure of our sin, instead of confessing our sin, we just get defensive? Instead of allowing God to deal with our sin, we pass the blame. Instead of allowing God to deal with our sin, we point out the sin of others. Instead of allowing God to deal with our sin, like the women of Samaria, we turn to pointless arguments. Listen to me. Now, I don't work here, so y'all can't fire me. Um, One of the biggest ways that we see this in our culture today, especially in the church, is with this whole issue of race. Oh, my goodness, bring up the issue of race and, like, white guilt is just, like, crazy. And then black people are like, yeah. And I'm just like, but the gospel, like, we need to be talking about this stuff. We do need to be talking about this stuff. We got to point out the sin. We got to point out our shortcut. Did y'all know the Southern Baptist Convention was started over the issue of slavery? And Southern Baptists were not on the right side of this thing. And what we do whenever this issue is brought up is we like to deflect because we don't like to be uncomfortable. But church, if we don't ever talk about this stuff, we don't have the opportunity to help our brothers and sisters heal. We don't have the opportunity to do that. And look, I'm not trying to get political, but we like to do this. Whenever sin is pointed out in us, we like to go and just deflect and say, well, we're not as bad as them over there. No, we're not as bad as those people. I'm not going to say anything about CRT. I'm just going to put my head back in my notes. But look, that's what we like to do. And that's exactly what this woman does. That's exactly what she does. Verse 21, Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. Salvation is from the Jews. Jesus was a Jew. Salvation was coming from the Jews. But an hour is coming, verse 23, and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Verse 24 again, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Look, Jesus, he looks to this woman and he tells her that the debate that she's trying to pull him into is pointless. He's trying to tell her it's pointless because the Father is not after people who worship over here or who worship over here or who worship over here. What the Father is after is people who are willing to worship him with a right heart, a right attitude based on a proper understanding, listen, of Scripture. One of the problems with the Samaritans is like they had their own, their own canon. They had their own thing. And Jesus is like, look, I'm trying to tell you right now like salvation has come. You see, what the Bible does to us is the Bible, not only does it show us who Jesus is, primarily the Bible shows us who God is. Listen to me. That is the primary purpose of Scripture, to show us God. But not only does the Bible show us who God is, but the Bible also shows us something about ourselves. Like secondarily, that's what the Bible does. 
This is how it does it, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What Hebrews 4.12, one of the things that it tells us is that as we read the word of God, the word of God also reads us. The word of God exposes the sin and shame that lies in our hearts and it provides the cure. That's what the word of God does. Verse 25, the woman said to him, look, I know the Messiah is coming. I know he is, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus says this. He says, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Oh, that's fire. Y'all, the cure for our nakedness, the cure for our sin, our sin. Y'all, I cannot talk today. The cure for our sin, the cure for our shame, it's not to try and cover it up and hide. That's not the cure. That's what this woman was doing all her life. She's trying to hide by, by going after man after man. And now at this point in her life, she's now trying to hide by coming out to, to, to do her daily work, her daily chores when nobody else is out. That's not the cure. And as the Bible shows us ourselves, y'all, the Bible also shows us our Savior. The Bible shows us the cure. When our sin and shame are exposed, the answer isn't more religion. Like, oh, I just need to pray more. Like, oh, I just need to get in my Bible more. Like, oh, I need to go to church. Look, all of those things are good, and you need to be doing them. That's what we call spiritual disciplines, including coming to church. That is a spiritual discipline. We need to be doing those things. But, y'all, we don't do those things to earn the love of God. We do those things because of the love of God. Salvation is to believe in and trust in the work of Jesus. That's faith. The call of Jesus on each and every one of us is not to become more religious. His call is for us to worship him in spirit and in truth. Nothing else will ever satisfy us the way Jesus can. Not simply because Jesus is better, but because Jesus is who we were made for. Like, I'm going to say that one more time because I want to I make sure that we understand that. Like, we don't worship Jesus in spirit and in truth just because we think he's better. We worship him in spirit and in truth because he's who we were made for. And Jesus is the one who satisfies our soul thirst, a thirst that is simultaneously never satisfied or always satisfied and never quenched. Now, in verse 26, Jesus reveals himself to be the promised Messiah. Now, this is important. We can't overlook this. He reveals himself to be the promised Messiah. In John's gospel, the very first person that Jesus reveals himself to be the Messiah to is a Samaritan woman. A woman. A woman on the margins of society. A woman of a race that the Jews did not like. A woman who was broken and probably felt like damaged goods. Uh, Jesus says in Luke 5, 31 through 32, it is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's who Jesus came for. Listen, if you feel broken, if you feel shame, if you acknowledge your weakness, if you were desperate for love, listen to me, Jesus came for you. That's who he came for. And like, this is what Jesus did for you to save you from your sin. The son of God, like Jesus Christ, he came to this earth. He became like you in every single way. He did what you couldn't do because you by nature are born under the wrath of God. You are a sinner by nature. Without Jesus, you got nothing. And yet Jesus did not just come to this earth for you. He came to this earth as you. Jesus stood in your place. We say it this way in our student ministry, the gospel in four words. It's Jesus instead of me. The book of Colossians says, on the cross, God nailed the record of our sin debt. That was Jesus. 
Look, in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve had sinned, God came looking for them in the garden, and he called Adam. He said, Adam, he said, Adam, where are you? You see, God knew Adam's sin. He knew Eve's sin, and he wanted to expose it so that he could fix it. So when God called out, when he said, where are you? What God was saying is, why are you hiding from me? Why, why are you not in my presence? I made you for my presence. Come out and let me fix this. Confess your sin. I know what you've done. Just let me fix it. But then when Adam and Eve came out from behind the bush, Adam called out to God and he said, I hid from you because I was naked. Adam says, I hid from you because I saw myself and I, I didn't like what I saw. I feel shame. God, I don't deserve to be in your presence. And so God calls back to Adam. He says, who told you you were naked? Like, who told you you were naked? Who told you that you weren't good enough for me? Who told you that I wouldn't love you for who you are? Did you disobey me? Confess your sin so that I can fix this. I want to fix this for you. Of course, Adam and Eve, they never truly confessed their sin. And even in their lack of repentance, God still promised to send a Savior the Messiah, that's Jesus Christ, who would come and do all the work necessary to free them from the shame and the guilt that they had incurred. Jesus is that Messiah, and Jesus has done all the work necessary to free his people. And one of the beautiful things about the gospel church, I said this at the beginning of the sermon, when we are saved, y'all, we are not saved to sit, we are saved to be sent. That's what God has done. Point number three, as the band starts to come up here, Jesus compels us to go. Jesus compels us to go. Verse 27, just then his disciples arrived, and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her water jar. She, she didn't give Jesus any water. She left her water jar, and she went into town, and she told the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Now, I want you to notice the responses, like what happens immediately after Jesus shares with this woman, like she apparently believes him. At least she wants to. First, the disciples show up and they're astonished. They're like, what is Jesus doing right now? Uh, secondly, once the woman realizes who she's talking to, oh, she drops everything. She drops everything and she goes into this town. She goes from being a social outcast to feeling responsible for telling everyone about the Messiah for bringing everyone to the Messiah. She immediately goes into the town and she begins to declare what Jesus said. You see what the gospel is? The gospel is not a how-to story, it's not. It's more like a newspaper. Look, if the gospel was a how-to story, every last one of us would be on a cross and we wouldn't make it. But the gospel is like a newspaper. It's a declaration of what God has done. She didn't go into the city to tell everyone how they could clean up or how they had to behave. Instead, what she did is she went into the city and she told everybody about what Christ had done. And then she invited them to come in and experience it themselves. Now, there are a couple of things to note. First, this is the natural response to everyone who has met Jesus. I said this to the students this past weekend, but look, if I were to show up late, now if I were to show up late at this service, it would have made sense. But look, if I were to show up late, because we got to run over here, but if I were like 30 minutes late, let's say I just walked into the room, and I'd be like, you know what, y'all, I'm so sorry I'm late. Thank you guys for waiting on me. I was crossing the street earlier and a bus just fell on my head. Y'all would look at me like, bro, you're lying. No, you can't, you can't tell me I'm lying. I'm not lying. No, 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 bro, you're lying. Look, if I were to cross the street and a bus were to fall on my head, you know what happened? I would look a little different. Like something about me would have changed, right? Here's the reality about the gospel, church. 
Whenever we're saved by the gospel, Paul calls this the power of God twice. This is the power of God for salvation. Whenever you're hit with the power of God, you know what happens? You look different. And listen, this is not just for those that have not grown up in church. This is also for those that have grown up in church. You may have walked an aisle one day. You may have prayed a prayer. But look, if you've never been saved, one day whenever you surrender your life to Jesus, if you were to do that today, something is going to be different. You might do all of the same things that you did before. You might pray. You might read scripture. You might show up to church. But there is something that's going to be different about you. And it's going to be the fact that you now are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. When I came to Jesus, I, I didn't live in church. I wasn't in church all my life. I was, y'all, I was bad little hood kid, like stealing from people. It was terrible. When I came to Jesus, my life changed dramatically because it had to, because I was hit with the power of God. That's what happens. And the natural, my, my response was to go to school and tell everybody, football team, everybody in school, like, y'all, Jesus is king. Like, that's my line right there. Jesus is king. Like, you should come to my church. Jesus is king. And my friends would pick on me. They'd start calling me all kinds of names and stuff. Yeah, I lost some credibility, whatever. Those same people are like messaging me on Facebook now asking me why Jesus had to die on the cross. But whenever we're hit by the power of God and the gospel, like what happens is we look different. And this is our natural response. Our natural response is to go out and tell other people what's happened. Second, look at how easy it was for her to share the gospel. Like, notice how simple it was. She didn't memorize a chart or, or a specific order of verses in the Bible. Her appeal was natural. It was, it was very simple, and it was very personal. Come see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Look, the reason why verse 6 says that Jesus had to pass, or verse 4, had to pass through Samaria is because of Jesus' desire to bring those who were far from God into a committed relationship with Jesus Christ. In church, that's what we were made for. Like, that's what we were saved for. God did not save us to sit. He saved us so that he could send us to save other people. Now, we don't do the work of salvation. You ain't got to be nervous about that. That ain't your job. That's the Holy Spirit's job. What we do is we go in the power of God, with the power of God for salvation, which is the message of the gospel, and we just be faithful. I don't know what's going to happen to you. I'm not going to say you're going to be safe. You know what? One day there could be a day where in America we could be persecuted. We ain't persecuted yet. Not like other believers are around the world. But there could come a day where we are. But listen to me. If you are not, one, practicing your spiritual disciplines, and if you are not sharing the gospel with other people, you want to know what's going to happen the day persecution falls on this land? The Navy SEALs say it like this. You do not rise to the level of your occasion. You sink to the level of your discipline. That's what you do. And so if that day comes, I hope and I pray that this church, I hope and I pray that this church is a beacon in this city with the message of the gospel for everyone. That's what Jesus freed us all to do. Jesus freed us so that we could go and free others. Listen, if you're here today and you've never said yes to Jesus, I want you to know Jesus is calling. Jesus wants you. The Bible says that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. All you have to do is call on the name of the Lord. I confess your sin. I admit you are a sinner. Believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin. And then commit to living your life every day. Yo, students, y'all remember we said this this weekend. The commitment to Jesus is not a one-time thing. Just like with my wife, every morning I wake up, I choose you. The next morning, baby, I choose you. My question is not whenever you leave this, today, this place today, will you, like if you were to die, if you were to get in a car accident and die, would you go to heaven? That's not my question. My question is tomorrow morning when you wake up, will you say yes to Jesus? 
If you've never said yes to Jesus, today is the day. The book of Hebrews, the author says, while today is still today, make every effort to enter into the rest of God. If you've never done that, do it today. Jesus has done all the work necessary to save you from your sin. Look, I don't know how invitation happens. I, I really don't. But look, if you're here today and you're like, I need to surrender my life to Jesus, do not leave this place before you talk to somebody. You just start grabbing people. Hey, I, I want to surrender my life to Jesus. Just grab somebody. They'll point you in the right direction. It might feel awkward. They might, you know, because of COVID, but salvation is more important. I'm going to pray, and then, church, we're going to get up, and we're going to sing. God, you're good. And God, we're so thankful for the gospel. We're thankful for the good news of salvation. We're thankful that your son has done everything necessary to save us from our sin. God, without your son, none of us would have a chance. None of us would. But God, you sent your son to die on the cross for our sin. And so today, God, we just want to praise you for that. We just want to worship you for that. And so, God, today as we get ready to sing, I pray that we would sing the message of the gospel loud. God, that we would proclaim and declare that your son is good. God, you're so good. God, as we leave this place today, help us to not leave the same way we came. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Church, let's stand and sing.